Hello, you're listening to Wait, How Do You Spell That? A Rare Disease Podcast. My name is Colby, and I'm the content manager here at Patientworthy. Today we're going to be discussing a condition called Syngap1-related non-syndromic intellectual disability, usually referred to as simply Syngap1. It's a rare genetic condition involving a specific protein-producing gene responsible for helping to regulate synapses in the brain. And to help with our discussion today, I'm happy to say we've got a very special guest. Mike Gralia is the co-founder and managing director of the Syngap Research Fund, a nonprofit committed to improving the quality of life of Syngap-1 patients through research and development of treatments, therapies, and support systems. Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. Mike, to start with, can you give us an overview of Syngap-1 for listeners who may not be familiar with the condition? Syngap-1 is a neurohaploinsufficiency, and what that means is it's a gene that's primarily expressed in the brain, neurohaploinsufficiency. All of our kids have a mutation on one of the two alleles, one of the two copies of the gene, and as a result, they have 50% of the protein in the body. You know, we all have two copies of every gene, one from mom, one from dad. Um, one of those has a typo, and as a result, the kids have 50% of the protein, and as a result, all of those, um, all of the symptoms arise and the symptoms are, um, you know, our colors on our logo are purple, blue, and green. And the purple is for epilepsy. The blue is for autism. The green is for intellectual disability. It's that unholy trio compounded by, um, sleep, hypotonia, really challenging behaviors at times, and often also feeding issues. So it's, it's a, it's a bit of everything. It's, it's like a lot of other neurohaploinsufficiencies that you may have heard of similar to like Dravet syndrome. Um, it's a little bit Angelman syndrome like. And what does the road to diagnosis typically look like for Syngap1 patients? We have a broad phenotype, which, which means that our kids vary a lot in terms of both how they present and when they present. So the, the more patients we find, the, the broader this gets. If a child is born with Syngap, they may or may not have feeding issues in the early days. Um, that would be your first sign. Your second sign would be missed milestones. These kids probably end up in speech therapy or early intervention around two or three. And, and those are the first signs. But you know, here we're just doing early intervention. It, it's rare that you get a genetic test unless development was so delayed that, that somebody had the foresight to order genetic testing. But really what normally triggers it is between the age of three and four. If they're caught, our kids will start having seizures. And, and the seizure phenotype is primarily, or initially I should say, an absence seizure. So basically staring spells. And actually our kids have atypical absence seizures, which means they're very rapid. And not only parents, but also neurologists often miss them as seizures. So you have the atypical absence seizures. Um, sometimes in our more severe kids that will progress onto drop seizures, which are much harder to miss, but still, you know, parents will, you know, we, we all as parents will say, want to be optimistic and want the best for our kids. So we say, oh, my kid's just clumsy. And then they they start dropping more and more and we realize it's actually more than that. So it's atypical absence seizures followed by drop seizures, sometimes tonic clonic seizures. But initially in the, between the ages of three and four, some of those seizures start. And if those seizures are caught, that leads to genetic testing. Now, unfortunately, our kids initially also present a lot like fragile X kids. Fragile X is a much better known disease and you can confirm a fragile X diagnosis with a chromosomal microarray. So often what I see is our parents first get given a CMA uh, they come back negative on the CMA, and then some of them are given genetic testing. I know uh, in my case, we were seeing a couple of neurologists for my son. The first one uh, gave us a CMA and said, it's not genetic, which was exactly wrong. 
And then the other one did the Invite epilepsy panel, thank God. And that came back with an almost. So, you know, once you, when you get genetic results, first you identify mutations and then you determine if those mutations are disease causing, not harmful or uncertain. And my son's mutation was uncertain, which required even more testing. And that helped us conclude that his mutation was in fact causing this dearth of the protein in the brain. So the, the straight answer to the question is diagnosis typically looks like, you know, genetic testing due to either delays or seizures, which often has to come after a chromosome microarray because that's what more people are familiar with. And in some cases, it can include uh, further testing like RNA sequencing to look at certain uncertain variants. But it, it, takes, it takes, frankly, too long. Normally, that, that whole process I just described can take the fastest I've ever seen it happen is a month. But more often, I hear about this process taking around a year, uh, which is heartbreaking because getting those kids connected with the community and doctors who know our disease is, is really important. I know this is a condition that is underdiagnosed. Can you explain why that is? I've been counting this every quarter for over two years now. Worldwide, we know about 808 patients as of the end of the last quarter, about uh, 220 of those are in the U.S. But we know from um, a study out of the Broad, Dennis Law's group, that the predicted incidence of SYNGAP1 is 6.1 per 100,000, which would suggest there are tens of thousands more patients. So you have to ask, where are they? And the answer is, it's really easy to miss our kids, right? A lot of our kids will have the absence seizures, and then they will go on to be autistic. So you can imagine a lot of our kids have an autism diagnosis and people just aren't even noticing that they're having absence seizures. If their seizures don't progress, there's a number of kids that'll get missed. I know in my own experience, when we gave my son Lamictal, which is a pretty standard first-line drug for absence seizures, his autism phenotype actually got more severe. He became much less verbal. He lost all eye contact. And at that point, we just thought we had an autistic epileptic kid, right? And if no one ever does genetic testing, you're never going to go from that autistic epileptic kid to somebody with a genetic diagnosis. And so because the phenotype compared to say other genetic epilepsies like Dravet is milder, many of our kids will, will just have the absence seizures. They simply won't get sequenced and then they won't get found. And, and that's a problem because even though the absence seizures don't have a, you know, a convulsive nature and, and don't scare people like other seizures do, my son was having 30 seizures an hour. Imagine re rebooting your computer 30 times an hour before treatment. You're never going to get anything done on that computer. Like these kids can't learn. They can't speak. It's so important that we treat the seizures, but also we understand the genetic etiology. So uh, largely because, you know, our kids are highly variable in presentation. The presentation is initially mild and can take years to get more severe. It's really easy for people to not go to genetic testing. And I think genetic testing is still underappreciated. And so people don't say, well, let's just do genetic testing. That, that's not something you hear people say, unfortunately. And, and I wish it was because a lot more kids would, would find out the genetic cause of their disease. And then a lot more people would be connected to informed care because there's tens of thousands of kids with epilepsy and the, and the treatments are frankly pretty generic and all have side effects. Whereas as soon as you get plugged into your community, whether it's Syngap1 or another genetic disease, you're, you're going to start making much better care decisions. Let's turn to you and the research fund for a moment. Tell us about your background and what led you to get involved in advocacy for this condition. I was a Peace Corps volunteer. I went off to grad school, got an MBA. I worked in healthcare consulting, went off to um, keep studying the world through healthcare. So I was, at, I was at the Gates Foundation and then other philanthropies doing really cool work. And then, thank God, somewhere along the line, I got 
fell in love, got married and, and had a kid. And my first son, Tony, I've actually got two sons. My first son, Tony was a little delayed and, you know, to be honest in my own lived experience. And sometimes I see this in our community too. The dads generally get it late, right? The moms figure out something's up pretty quick. And the dads are, I think maybe, I don't know if it's, we're better at denial or, or, or what, but took me a while to really admit that, yes, Tony's Tony, something's wrong, right? So Tony started missing milestones. We had him in speech therapy and occupational therapy and physical therapy and all the therapies. And then right after his third birthday, he had a serious seizure. And then exactly what I just said before happened. We went to a couple of neurologists. We got a chromosomal microarray. We got the Vitae test and we got the RNA sequencing and we realized that we had Syngap one. And then um, my wife and I are very fortunate to be in touch with a number of good people. So we talked to some of the best scientists in America and we said, what can we do about Syngap-1? And a few things became clear. The first thing that became clear is because it's a neurohapoinsufficiency, because all of our patients, including our son, have one good copy and one bad copy of the gene, then we don't have to do some kind of effort where we have to go in and fix this one mutation in our son's head. Instead, what we can just do as a community is invest in technology that'll make the good copy of that gene. Because all of our kids have a different typo that renders one copy bad, but they all have a different typo. So going in and fixing those different typos would be very expensive, right? But if we can just find a way to make that good copy of the gene work harder, it would help all of our kids. And so that's actually good news. And 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 we realized that this was this was a, a viable approach, a way to target the disease. We also realized that science, we're at a point in time, this is three years ago, where science is changing so fast that it's not crazy to think that you could do that in a way that would improve Tony's life, right? We can cure Syngap-1, right? And you say cure and people get triggered and they say, oh, well, don't say cure because you're gonna give people false hope. I, I don't think it's false hope. I think it's a, the appropriate level of ambition, right? These kids are very sick. They're suffering mightily, takes a huge toll on families. Um, the, the financial, the emotional, the energetic cost, people leave their jobs to take care of them. It, it, it's, it's painful. And we need to do as much, we need to aim high and we need to try to cure this disease. And, and frankly, um, the sooner we get in their brains and make that good copy of the gene work harder, the sooner we're going to slow the progression of the disease, the sooner we're going to improve their quality of life. It, it's, it's really important work to do. So all of these things were sort of explained to us three years ago. And we sat back and said, great, we want to raise some money. We want to give some money. Let's fund some science. And we, we couldn't find a science-focused group that was focused on Syngap-1. And we couldn't find a place where we would be comfortable putting our funds. And we said, well, we're just going to have to make one. So we created the Syngap Research Fund, you know, named appropriately because we wanted to fund research. That was our primary goal. The, back then, we're talking about a few hundred patients, right? Once that community realized what we were doing and understood the scale and scope of it, they, they started, parents started reaching out to us and said, we want to be involved. And so when we started, the board was me and my wife and an advisor, uh, who's a, one of my old bosses from the Gates Foundation, a, a very competent scientist. And, and today the, the board is, is 14 families. So we, we've had 14 families come in and, and now work with us day to day in a meaningful way to, to raise funds and raise awareness and prepare for clinical trials. And it's been an incredible journey. I had no idea how complicated this would be. This is the hardest I've ever worked in my life. Um, for the first year of SRF's existence, I, I, I somehow held down a day job while I was working on this furiously. Um, about a year and a half ago, I realized that I, I couldn't do that anymore. I couldn't both have a day job and run SRF. And so I left my day job and I now do this full-time as a volunteer. So yeah, where we are today with SRF is we are doggedly pursuing getting the patient community ready for for some therapies for our kids and making sure that the scientists have the support they need 
and are aware of this gene because it's a fascinating gene. It's underdiagnosed and there's a lot of kids to help. And, it, and it's, it's possible. It's, it's going to happen in the next few years, which is, God, it's so important because, you know, my son is sick. He's seven. He's, he's, uh, he's getting big. He's getting strong. I can barely handle him now. And, and if I didn't really believe that there was a therapy coming, I would be, I would be really scared about the future. I'll be honest with you. Can you tell us about some of the ways that the SynGap Research Fund has been involved in advancing genetic research? Yeah, absolutely. So right when we kicked off the fund, we made $800,000 of grants. To date, we've given about, we've committed 1.6 million. One of those checks was to a guy named Rick Huguenier at Hopkins, who's the head of neuroscience at Hopkins. He's, he's exceptional. He was one of the two labs who discovered this gene um, only 20 years ago, maybe 21 now. And I'm really proud to say that that grant we gave Rick, he, he has since taken that work and gotten another grant from the Simons Foundation Safari to continue his ASO work. So that's just one of the grants we gave, right? And it's already par been parlayed into another grant to continue some ASO work. And, and basically when you're talking about genetic therapies, when you're talking about going into the brain and making the good copy of the gene work harder, you're talking about ASOs or AAVs. And I'm, I'm not qualified to talk about those different therapeutic modalities, but essentially an ASO is, is engineered to go in and knock something out. So if you take the brakes out on a car, the car is going to go faster. That's what we want to do. The ASO will go in and take the brakes out on the good copy of the gene, make the good copy of the gene work harder and therefore have more protein. So already that's like one super clear win for SRF, but we've, we've gone much farther than that, right? So we, we've supported another professor at USC, just two more examples, to work on organoids, which are colloquially referred to as mini brains. So basically what Dr. Koba at USC is doing is, is growing, is taking patient derived samples and growing mini brains to be able to study and understand our kids because our kids are very highly variable, right? And why is it that two kids, both with mutations on SYNGAP1 have such a different presentation? This is one of the many questions that Dr. Koba is working on. It, we're, we're thrilled to support his work. And one of the things that's exciting about him is he wouldn't be working on SYNGAP1 if it wasn't for SRF. One of our parents reached out to him and said, hey, you wrote this paper about proteins and one of the proteins of SYNGAP1 and have you ever thought of blah, blah, blah. And Kobo was like, no, I haven't thought much about that. So we started talking to him and we sent him patient samples. Fast forward two years, we're funding work in his lab and, and he's really becoming an expert on our gene. So that's exciting. Another exciting thing we support is um, Dr. Heller at UPenn is, an, is one of the best epigeneticists in the world. And somebody came to us and said, you know, we really need to understand the epigenetics of SYNGAP1. Epigenetics are what's outside of the gene that regulate the gene. And they said, there's this, there's this researcher at Penn who's actually got a niece who's got SYNGAP1 and she's, she's one of the best. Like you're not compromising if you give her money maybe she would work on this. So we reached out to her and she, she gave us a proposal and we we're so grateful to have somebody of her caliber, who's also a family member of a Singapian to be working on this. And that we have, we've made other grants, but we're trying to be smart in terms of the work we're supporting. So as to make sure that things like understanding the epigenetics of Singap1 are, are taken care of and are in the public domain, right? It's much more important that we as a foundation fund this and the information is freely available, then uh, say a company funds it and then that information is available only to them. So that's what we're doing on the straight genetic side. And then two other things that we're doing. Um, one of them is, is a patient registry that we've probably come to in a second, but the other one is an ICD-10 code, right? 
So identifying these patients is step one. Step two is understanding their journey. And, and really our healthcare records are built around and organized on codes, right? So when you go see a doctor, they do something to you, there's a code for that. And they do something to you because of something that was wrong with you. And there's a code for that. We just take for granted that there's a code for whatever's wrong with us, right? Cough, pneumonia, broken leg, broken arm, earache, whatever. Mm-hmm. There's no code for Syngap-1. You have to, it's such a rare and early and new disease. That there is no ICD-10 code for that yet. And again, due to the good work of, of our board, specifically Dr. Schlecht, who is a parent that's on our board, we have been able to secure an ICD code approval from the CDC that will be in effect in October 1st. And if you're a doctor that's listening, it's f 78.81 And that ICD-10 code is going to help us not only identify more patients, But more importantly, it's going to allow the payers to understand how expensive these patients are and help them care about supporting our families. Because this disease, our kids have so many specialists, right? Feeding specialists, orthopedists, speech, occupational, neurologists, psychiatrists, otherists. It's endless. Both the grants to scientists and the the work on the ICD-10 code have been things that I'm really proud of. And I'm so grateful that we've been able to pull off. You've also partnered with Citizen, which is a health information platform to launch a natural history initiative for SYNGAP-1. Can you tell us about this study and why it's so important to understanding this condition? I think the grants and the ICD-10 code are two of the three things that I'm I'm proudest of at this moment, but the Citizen is the third. So a minute on Citizen. They are a, a, a health records company started by a guy named Neil Sethi. So Neil is a, is a technologist in the healthcare space who knows what he's doing. And his sister got cancer and he spent, and he quit his job and he spent six months flying around with his sister trying to get her help. And she passed, unfortunately. And Anil sat back and realized how inefficient the healthcare system, how broken health records were, and how hard it had been for him to find out about clinical trials that could have helped his sister. And so he, he, he committed to building a company that would fix that. And that company was Citizen. So this was about three years ago. So we started Citizen and for two years, Citizen just worked on cancer. Free to, if you or someone you love, God forbid, has cancer, you should go to citizen.com right now and sign up. It's an amazing free service to cancer patients. And then about a year ago, Another rare disease mom, um, Nasha Fitter from Fox G1, who knows Anil, convinced him to expand into rare disease. And, and at that time, I was talking to her, and she agreed to launch the rare disease platform with Syngap1. So we are actually the first rare disease group to work with Citizen. We have over 110 patients enrolled. And what, what Citizen does using HIPAA's right of access, right? HIPAA was designed to allow patients to control their data. It wasn't designed to make sure nobody ever told anyone anything, right? Citizens Privacy Officer, Devin McGraw, actually was the the HIPAA officer in the Obama administration. So she knows HIPAA backwards. She's deeply concerned about patient privacy and Citizen enables the patients to have Citizen collect the records on their behalf. That data goes into a Citizen portal. So already as a parent, I've won because all my records from all the specialists Tony's have seen are in one place and they've been collected for me, right? So it takes me 10 minutes to sign up for Citizen, they do all the work, step one. Step two, they'll update it when I tell them to. So I know I have one place I can go and see all Tony's records. And it's and I'm not talking about like the one piece of paper they hand you when you leave the visit. I'm talking about the complete medical record, complete with the doctor's notes. I mean, I've had parents who've gone through these records and learned about diagnoses they didn't know they had and seen what the doctor was thinking three or four years ago. And even though the doctor didn't say this to them, you know, the notes uh, revealed certain insights. So that's been incredibly valuable. But what's truly exciting about it is at that point, Citizen goes through it and analyzes that data 
it de-identifies it, it standardizes it. And what standardizes it means is, is they, they read every line in the record. My son is seven. He has 7,000 pages of medical records, right? 7,000 pages. But they've had a robot read every line of every page and translate all, those diff- all that natural language into different codes. So that data standardized, normalized, and de-identified. And now I, as the head of SRF, in partnership with Citizen, can invite researchers to come and, and get a copy of that de-identified data and analyze it and write about our kids. And to a researcher, that should be music to their ears. They don't have to consent anybody. It's already consented. It's IRB approved. They don't have to uh, pour through those records themselves. Citizen has done it. They just get to get the data and publish on it for free. It's a gift. And of course, companies, when they need that, because it's going to be cheaper, faster, better than doing their own studies, um, they're going to pay Citizen a licensing fee that's going to be a lot cheaper than what they would have spent gathering the same data. But what we've been able to achieve is that I now have 110 patients in the U.S. who are consented and on that platform, which means tomorrow, if a researcher wants to work on Syngap 1, they can get 110 patients, complete medical histories, and start writing. And that is huge. And we're actually in the process of partnering with Boston Children's Hospital at Harvard to do exactly that. So, the, And the reason all of that matters is because... Um, I wrote an article a little while ago called One Year Sooner, is if you look at what happened with Stoke and Dravet, right? Stoke had this genetic therapy for Dravet. They came along, they said, okay, we need a, we need a natural history study. Uh, they didn't find one they liked. And so they spent a year recruiting patients, doing a study, and, and, and got, they got the endpoints that they got out of that. But you know what that was? That was a year that kids weren't being treated. And that is not acceptable. As a, as a dad, watching my son get bigger and bigger, that's not acceptable. If we can work now as citizen to make sure the data is organized and ready so that when the next Stoke comes along or the next biotech comes along and they have a therapy for our kids and they can just license that data on Monday and start analyzing it on Tuesday and have an, have an endpoint in a few weeks later, hallelujah. Like that's living the dream. And I literally, my last call was a video, a video panel with parents talking about citizen to encourage more families in the US to sign up so that we can have all of this data ready to go. What does the current treatment landscape look like for Syngap-1, and what's on the horizon? The current treatment landscape is, is um, deeply disappointing, utterly frustrating. I, I, it's not good. Um, what's on the horizon is great. But what the, the reality we have today is that I need to see a, you know, a, a neurologist to treat my son's epilepsy. I need to see a psychiatrist to treat my son's behaviors. I could be seeing a sleep doctor to treat his sleep. And the trouble is, even though you're seeing three or four specialists and they're all writing a prescription, all those drugs end up in the same body and all those drugs interact with each other. And most of our parents are not medical doctors, right? So you're sitting there giving your kid a couple of anti-epileptic drugs because our seizures are refractory, meaning that one drug generally doesn't do the trick. You're giving them behavioral drugs. You're giving them maybe sleep drugs. You're giving them whatever other drugs. And then you've got to manage those interactions. And if you're lucky enough to get the balance right, guess what happens? Your kid's going to gain 10 pounds in the next year. And probably one of those drugs needs to be upped. And then you got to redo this balancing act. And, you know, without quoting him, one of the best neurologists I know looked at me once and he said, you know what we're doing to kids today with some of these drugs, history is not going to be kind to us. I think that's very true. So we are giving kids drugs that have, you know, partial benefit and serious side effects. And it's, we got to do it, right? You got to treat seizures. The seizures have to be treated. Um, you, you, you need to treat the behaviors, although I think sometimes we overdo it and, and you, and you need to address the other issues. I think one of the other phenotypes about our kid that's important is our kids really don't feel pain. 
And that's a problem, especially if you have GI issues, right? Because if you or I need to go to the bathroom or, got, or get impacted, we're going to feel pain and know there's a problem. If our kids need to go to the bathroom or feel impacted, they're not going to feel pain. And that's going to create a bigger problem because that's our warning sign. That's how we know that something needs to be fixed. So the current treatment landscape is painful, demanding. It takes a toll on the kids. It takes a toll on the family. And it still doesn't solve the problem. Our kids still all suffer mightily. What's on the horizon is what needs to be done, which is a genetic therapy that goes to the root of the, of the disease, gets in their brain and makes the good copy work harder. I mentioned before, what's public is that Rick Huguenier has his ASO that he's working on. There's a, there's a couple of other lab, academic labs I'm aware of who are working on ASOs. And there's a number of, of biotechs that have reached out to us and have expressed interest in working on Syngap-1. All those conversations are under NDA. But as, as a dad, I'm hopeful that a number of companies are thinking about this. And I think through our continued efforts to, to raise awareness for this disease and make sure people are thinking about Syngap-1, Hopefully they will realize that the burden is very high and that this is a disease that they, they should invest in to help all the kids. But also there's a huge market here, right? We have, a, we have a large undiagnosed population. And once there's a therapy, it's going to be easier to find those kids. And, and I think whoever, whichever drug company develops therapies to, to upregulate Syngap-1 is going to, um, it's going to be happy and their, and their shareholders will be too. But that, that's, the, that's the state of the art today. The Syngap Research Fund website has a lot of great resources for families. What advice do you have for parents whose child may be newly diagnosed with Syngap? So if you go to our website and you click on um, families, I'm pretty sure that's a menu. Yep. If you go to families, it just says start here, connect with us, join the registry doctor's newsletter. Like it's, it's that simple. So what I, I tell people to do is go to our website, read the start here and sign up for citizen. 30 days later. So if you signed up today on August 12th, you know, on September 12th, you would have all your medical records in one place. Then we would start standardizing and normalizing that. So what you can do on day one is go to the website, sign up for that. Day two, you can start watching our webinars. We have over 36, last time I counted, webinars on our website with different scientists and clinicians talking about our disease. That's where you're going to become an expert on Syngap-1, which is what every parent has to do, like it or not, right? So start watching the webinars, um, connect with us, reach out to, to me or Lauren on my team or anyone on our board, ask questions. We will happily get on the phone or Zoom with you and, and start finding other families near you. There's nothing like meeting other families. No one else is going to get it. So it's essential that parents connect with the rest of the community. And, um, and then the other thing I do every week, I do a video podcast called Syngap 10. It's just a 10 minute briefing from me to the family saying, this is what's going on. This is what we're working on. This is what I'm looking forward to. And it's my way of keeping the parents up to date. I, the parents deserve to know what's going on. I think some rare disease groups uh, who will remain nameless, you know, take an approach of um, just trust us. We're getting things done. Just give us your money and whatever. And, and frankly, I think that's ridiculous. I, I think the right answer is transparency, right? My mantra in the mantra on our logo is collaboration, transparency, urgency. We have collaboration. We have to work with others because there's too much to do. Transparency. You deserve to know exactly what we're doing, especially because we're asking for money. Urgency. Our kids are sick. We need to get this done fast. And so in that Syngap 10 podcast, I try to tell people, Hey, this is what I'm working on. This is what's going on. This is where we are please join us. And, and I do that every week. So you can find Syngap 10 wherever you listen to podcasts. What I've been surprised by is a few families have, have, you know, I'm only a few months into that. So I've had a few parents get on the phone with me and say, you know, Mike, I just listened to every episode of Syngap 10, 
which means they've had me in their head for like three hours. You know, they know what I've been talking about. They have a sense of what's going on. And then they, they can use that podcast to just stay up to date as time goes on. So that's been, that, those are the resources I would point people to on day one. And, and then just connect with the community and, and let us know how we can help you. You were mentioning to me earlier that the foundation has a couple of events coming up, a scientific roundtable with the American Epilepsy Society and a big fundraiser in New York. Can you give us some more information about that? Sure. So the AE, we've, we've been doing a roundtable at AAS every year for a couple of years now. This year will be in Chicago, of course, with the Delta variant and COVID. I'm, I'm expecting this to become a virtual event like last year's was, but doesn't matter. Um, the American Epilepsy Society is, is like is like summer camp for neurologists, right? All the neurologists go. That's where they connect. And what we do, what we're doing with the roundtable is, you know, back when it was an in-person event, we said, hey, come to breakfast. We'll buy you breakfast. And while you're eating breakfast, we will um, we'll have some speakers about the latest Syngap research. And it's just our way of making sure that the neurologists who haven't seen our kids yet, but will, can learn about the state of the art with Syngap and be able to um, identify it and help parents find the best uh, treatments for their kids. So that's Friday, December 3rd. And whether or not it happens live in Chicago, it will definitely be online. So if you go to syngapresearchfund.org, you can sign up for the round table there. And, and it'll just be a way to learn as much as you can about Syngap 1 in, in a really high-powered couple hours. And then in New York on October 23rd, I think it's actually going to be in Jersey, we're, we're doing a, a, a gala for, um, we're calling it the Karen Lieb Gala. Karen is the oldest known Syngapian. She's 65. So back to diagnosis, she's 65. She was diagnosed last year at 64. So it's possible for these kids to go decades and not be found. But um, Karen's sister, Nancy, is hosting a gala uh, in Jersey and it's on October 23rd. And if you're in the New York, New Jersey area, I would encourage you to go. Be a great chance to meet a lot of families and help us raise money for um, our research. I wanna make a point about raising money for our research. My wife and I who founded SRF cover all overhead costs. So that means absolutely anything that isn't going to a lab or, or, or to the natural history study is is paid for directly by my family um so that means lawyers accountants website whatever everything um this microphone that i'm talking to you on and and the reason that matters is when when any of us give money to any charity we should be asking the question what's your overhead right and i you know people have different opinions about the right answer but there's a percentage of every dollar we give that gets eaten by the organization we give it to and I don't want people to be worrying about that. So my wife and I have committed to cover all the overheads for SRF. And that, what that means is that 100% of the money you give to SRF goes directly to science. And I, and I think that's super important. So the same is true of this New York fundraiser. Every dollar we raise will end up in a lab, at, you know, Penn or USC or Hopkins or somewhere. But those are, those are two exciting events that are coming up this year. And if someone wants to know more about Syngap and the work your foundation is doing in that space, Where's the best place for them to find more information? Uh, our website, syngapresearchfund.org. Um, but you can also email me, mike at syngapresearchfund.org. And you can also um, just call me, uh, 650-441-4191. You know, anyone who wants to talk about Syngap, this is all I do all day, every day. Um, Syngap is S-Y-N-G-A-P. So um, really encourage people to reach out and ask any questions. We are an open book. Well, Mike, I'd like to thank you for coming on the show today and introducing our audience to SynGap1 and the SynGap Research Fund. It was a real pleasure to talk to you. Same here. Thanks so much, Colby.
And if you'd like to learn more about the Syngap Research Fund and the important work they're doing to support people with this condition, you can check out their website at www.syngapresearchfund.org. And we'll also leave a link in the show notes for this episode so you can check that out. And remember, you can always keep up with the latest in rare disease news by visiting patientworthy.com. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram by searching for patientworthy on those platforms. A quick shout out to those listeners who have been leaving reviews on their favorite podcasting platforms. It may seem like a small thing, but it really does go a long way toward helping us out. So thank you for that. And finally, if you have any questions or comments about today's show, or if you have ideas for a future episode, you can get in touch with me by sending an email to Colby, that's C-O-L-B-Y, at patientworthy.com. That does it for today's episode. Thank you once again to Mike from the Syngap Research Fund, and thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.